0: There's no better place to lose yourself, and find yourself, than between the covers of a book. Hi, I'm Ann Bocock, and it's time to go between the covers. From mystery to adventure, from romance to history, I interview authors of all genres. Join me for in-depth conversations into their creative processes, their struggles, and of course their successes. This episode was originally streamed live and includes viewer questions. Enjoy. My guest is New York Times best-selling author Robert Colker, and his new book is Hidden Valley Road Inside the Mind of an American Family. It's a true story. It's a story of an extraordinary family of 12 children, six of them diagnosed with schizophrenia. It's riveting, it's haunting, and it's unsettling, all at the same time. Bob, welcome, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, Anne, it's great to talk to you.
0: I think before we get into this, we really need to understand this family, who they are, and the prologue really tells it pretty well. If you wouldn't mind reading from the beginning of that for me.
1: Up until this point, I mentioned that the the family really spanned the baby boom. The kids were born between 1945 and 1965. Six of the Galvin boys took ill at a time when so little was understood about schizophrenia that the search for an explanation overshadowed everything about their lives. They lived through the eras of institutionalization and shock therapy, the debates between psychotherapy versus medication, the needle in a haystack search for genetic markers for the disease and the profound disagreements about the cause and origin of the illness itself. There was nothing generic about how they experienced the illness, each suffered differently, requiring different treatments and shifting diagnoses and prompting conflicting theories about the nature of schizophrenia. Some of those theories could be especially cruel to the parents who often took the blame as if they'd caused the disease by something they did or did not do. The children who did not become ill were in many respects as affected as their brothers. Being a member of the Galvin family was about either going insane yourself or watching your family go insane growing up in a climate of perpetual mental illness. Even if they happened not to descend into delusions or paranoia, even if they didn't come to believe that the CIA was searching for them or that the devil was under their bed, they felt as if they were carrying an unstable element inside themselves. How much longer, they wondered, before it would overtake them too.
0: Pretty powerful. I I think we should, this is a family, of 14 people, 12 children. Can we start with the parents, Mimi and John? As you said, it, it, this starts, I think they were married in, in the 40s. Who were they? Give me a, a little bit of their background.
1: Sure, and one of the thing that I think things that I think has been inviting for readers is to read this really as a family saga, a multi-generational one. So part one really starts with the mother and the father of the family meeting as teenagers and falling in love, and part two is the children growing up. So in part one, we meet Don and Mimi. They both live in New York City in Queens. Um, they are in high school. They're both bright and you know friendly kids. They fall in love and really stay together off from high school onward. Uh, this is right in the years before World War II begins. Finally, the war catches up with them. And just before Don ships out uh, to go to the South Pacific for combat with the Navy, The two of them conceive a child and have a very quick marriage. So baby number one, who is named Donald, after Don, the father, is born in 1945. And then, you know, over the next 20 years, up to 1965, they have 12 children. Now then life doesn't go as planned. They they shuttle all around the country. They move to Colorado Springs and then elsewhere, and then back to Colorado Springs. They eventually make their life out West, which is something neither of them ever thought they would do. But then they, they become this extraordinary model, exemplary family for their entire community until one day things start to go very wrong.
0: You interviewed, I understand that you interviewed the entire Galvin family, which really took me back when I read this. Did you insist that everybody be on board with you doing this book?
1: When when the project first came my way through the two youngest Galvin family members, the two sisters, I was very skeptical that it could happen at all. You had nine surviving children of the 12 and then one surviving parent, the Mimi, and I thought between those 10 people, there would be at least one person who would object to a book, who would have a problem with medical privacy laws or, or other confidential information or talking about some of the really troubling things that happen in this family, not just mental illness, but uh, sexual abuse and, and murder-suicide. They're, they're, things get very dark. So I thought, there's no way I really want to do this book unless I have a meaningful conversation with every living family member and make sure that they uh, understand what the book could be and, and have realistic expectations for it. And so that took a year. Um, uh, before I started working full-time on the book to make sure that everybody was on board.
0: Your powers of persuasion must be really good to get them to open
1: up. They were ready. I think, first of all, the two sisters had been thinking for decades about a way to tell their family story. The family had been studied by science, as I'm sure we'll talk about, and they wanted to find out more about that because their participation had often been confidential but also they had made it through a lot of the darkest periods of their lives and wanted the world to know about that. And what I hadn't anticipated was that some of the older siblings would defer to them and they would say, well, you know, uh, it's not my dream to have a book written about this family, but if, if the two younger sisters really want this, I will allow it to happen.
0: There were only two girls in, in this family. Um, I wanna make that clear. And obviously they are the ones that drove this story to you.
1: That's right, um, I, I wanted to tell their story of recovery and I also wanted to tell the story of the mentally ill siblings to make sure that they didn't appear as cookie cutter characters. I didn't want this to be a monster movie like Invasion of the Body Snatchers where the child is just taken. And, and I wanted to tell the parents' story as well. I wanted it all, and the science story too. So I, I, I toyed with the idea of starting small maybe with a magazine story, but then I realized, this is huge, this deserves a really big you know, swing for the bleachers kind of book.
0: Who has 12 children? Now I have my theory about why, but why do you think they had 12 children?
1: I have my own ideas, and then some readers have come forward in the months since the book came out with some interesting ideas too. I I think they enjoyed having a distinctive life out there in Colorado where they made their home. They They flew Falcons and Don, was the falcon man at the at the air force football games flying birds during halftime and then Mimi had her own you know fame as someone with 12 children and recipes that she cooked the kids would end up in the local paper i think they enjoyed it and and cultivated that but more than that i think Mimi in particular was searching to create a new story or a new narrative for herself uh, since her old dreams really had gone wayside through her move out west. She also had a father she lost early, and her husband was growing more distant from her too. And that's where some readers have come forward and said maybe she was trying to keep her husband in the family by continuing to have children, or maybe she was competing with his, his drive and determination to be a big shot by being a big shot herself. These are all uh, theories that the kids have had at one time or another, too.
0: Yeah, as a reader, I I was in line with with the competition part. We do have a Facebook question that just came in, and it is, how much did you know about schizophrenia before you took on this project?
1: Very little. Um, I really came into it as the family story, but that was the exciting part for me. I'm a narrative nonfiction writer and a journalist, and quite often I'm searching for very human stories about regular, everyday people who encounter something extraordinary, but the world that they're in is often unfamiliar to me. And so the, the pleasure of this career and the privilege of this career is you get to dive in and learn uh, about that world. Um, with my first book, actually, it was the world of, of, um, of escorts and sex workers. And, and, uh, and then I've done a lot of law enforcement stories and some science and psychiatry stories. So, so the, the, the fact that it was unfamiliar actually was a plus to me.
0: And now that you've mentioned science, let's let's look at this for, for a little bit. Here's what's very eye-opening. I'm reading this and looking at what a horrible situation this is and how we need medical intervention and science. And then you're telling me all how many years, decades, God knows how long it takes to get a pharmaceutical company actually on board. There's one character, Dr. Lynn Delisi. She was such an important part of this book. My, my takeaway is that if you're going to be a research scientist, you've got to have a lot of patience.
1: Yes, she, she was coming up in the late 70s when if you were a, a brain specialist, particularly psychiatric in terms of mental illness, the smart money was to focus on things like anxiety or depression where you would have some hope in your career of having some kind of breakthrough. Um, not a lot of people were interested in schizophrenia because it seemed so hopeless and so complicated genetically. Uh, but years before the human genome was sequenced, Linda Lisi was determined to look for genetic markers in families like the Galvins. The Galvins were one of the first families she met, and she never forgot them.
0: Nothing happens quickly, as as we said, when it, when in research and in developing drugs, there is also a lot of competition, and there were a lot of competing theories about mental illness. One of them that, that you touched on just briefly in, in the prologue was about the mother shouldering the blame. There actually were people that thought, okay, this comes from the mother.
1: Yes. And I, I think it's important to, to think for a second about the options that were available to the family in the, in the late 60s and early 70s when their boys started getting sick half of psychiatry was blaming mothers. There was a term called the schizophrenogenic mother, um, where the idea that the mother sent these weird double messages and tormented her children, and um, some children were so tortured by this that they created imaginary worlds to retreat into where the world made sense. Kind of ridiculous to think of now, but it was an accepted idea. And of course, this isn't unique to schizophrenia. There were refrigerator mothers who were blamed for autism, and mothers were blamed for making their male children homosexual, you know, the, the, the mid, middle of the 20th century was not kind to mothers in psychiatry. But then the other half were falling in love with the drugs, with Thorazine and Clozapine and, and the psychoactive drugs that they felt were miracle drugs for, for managing the symptoms of schizophrenia. But the tragedy there is that that's all they did. They, it might've made a patient more manageable and quieter, but it certainly didn't cure them. And it often led to worse health effects down the line. So uh, their options were so few and far between, and it's only gotten a little better since then.
0: Were there illnesses, was it the illness that intrigued you or the family dynamic story itself?
1: I I think both. I think I I have a lot of experience in my career writing about families in crisis and and about people going through crisis situations. And so I feel like I have something to offer there in trying to be a, a sensitive reporter who's non-judgmental and who can create something intimate, something that the reader feels like they're actually walking in the shoes of that person. But schizophrenia, I really had to hit the books. You know, I, I sat and my library now has a couple hundred books, but they, they're they all funny because most of them are out of date and obsolete. I wanted to see what people were thinking when when the Galvins were around and active. So a lot of the books are wrong, but I, I, it was a great way for me to learn how our understanding of the illness has evolved over time.
0: If you are enjoying the show so far, make sure to subscribe and don't forget to leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Now, back to the show. to do something that in a in a book of this scope and with the this me, these many characters that i think is pretty remarkable and that is you gave a voice to every single member of this family as you said before i think your exact words were it's not a cookie cutter disease all the, the, the these children the, the these young men these boys that suffered from schizophrenia all manifested differently, it they, they, they was not the same. How did you manage to keep the stories separate? And how important was it that you gave them each a voice?
1: It, it was one of the things I was concerned about early on, that I, that I would just make them into, into little widgets and, and not real people. But my worries kind of went away when I first personally met the three surviving mentally ill brothers, um, Matt and Peter and Donald. They all are charming. They all are different from one another. They obviously all are are um, you know have disabilities now, cognitive and otherwise, and physical disabilities because of the toll the meds have taken on them. But it's not like they're sitting in straitjackets in maximum security settings. They're you know human beings in need of care. And they and I got to see how they were different from one another. And that I, I kind of relaxed early on, saying, "Oh, I get it. They're people who are have illnesses." And and of course, then the experts I talked to all confirmed. They said, you know, there's no one schizophrenia. There, people manifest it differently. That's why no, there is no magic pill for it. Clinicians spend months or weeks or, or years uh, or sometimes decades trying to get the, right, the best variety of medications that can help someone the most. And even that isn't a cure. So it's an individualistic disease to begin with.
0: And in this story, some of these boys started exhibiting signs early. Some much later, so th- this was horrifying for the parents who had thought at some point, some of these boys have been spared and then find out no.
1: Yes, and then at one point they're on high alert and one of their sons is a hippie who's taking lots of drugs and staring out into space and they throw him in the hospital for a while thinking that he might have schizophrenia. They, 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 are, they are terrified, but the stigma drives everything into secrecy. They, they are not able to talk to other people about it and they feel intense shame. I wanted to write about that because that's something that I think some people still endure today, perhaps not as much as in the 60s and 70s. But but if if this book can counteract the stigma of mental illness, then so much the better.
0: The women in the story are absolutely fascinating. The mother, Mimi, is fascinating. The two daughters really spoke to me, Margaret and Lindsay, who are probably, I'm going to guess, about 70 years
1: older or, or so at, at this point. Um, they're in their mid-50s now.
0: 50s I honestly think, you know, I, I know they disappeared for they, they wanted nothing to do with, with this situation after a while, but they came
1: back. What brought them back? The first question I had when I heard about the family was: how could all this happen to one family? But the second question was: how did this family stay a family? And particularly with, with the sisters, but with everybody in the family, I kept asking the same question over and over again. I would say, you know you didn't have to come back you could have you could have moved to LA and become a lawyer and you know sent a christmas card every year and that would have been that you know why what brought you back to colorado what brought you into the orbit of your family why are were you you were so traumatized you had legitimate grounds to just divorce your family and yet they didn't and they what really surprised me was how different the two sisters really are in the way that they came to terms with what happened i had thought initially that the two of them would be two peas in a pod and it would be them against the world. I thought that was the story I was going to tell, but very quickly, as I spoke with them individually, I learned that they, you know, that their stories only intersected every now and then, and that sometimes they clashed and that they had very different methods for, for getting through the trauma. And I thought that that aside from being real and true, it was also useful for readers. They could look and say, well, who would I be more like? Which which path would I take? Do I do a little of both of what they do, or uh, how would I how would I do it if I went through this?
0: I imagine that this putting this book together was pretty cathartic for both of the the daughters as as well. I think probably they addressed things to each other that had never been said.
1: Yes, they have issues with each other and with their whole family and with their mother, which of course. That changed when her the mother, Mimi, passed away in the middle of working on the book. So then they dealt with that loss as well. It's it, It's been something to be on, on this journey with them. You know, Lindsay is an activist and wants the world to know more about mental illness and about the way this population really gets the short end of the stick. Not just families like them, but fam- people who are homeless and on the street and cycling in and out of jail. Um, Margaret is very focused on um, artistic expression and self-care and um, ways to get over the traumas of her childhood and, and feels like she has an inspiring story to tell in that regard. So it, it's two different ways of, of dealing with the same thing.
0: Most of this takes place, the kids are born in like the 40s and 50s and 60s and, and that, that is the, the basis for this story. If this was happening today, how do you think this story would have played out any differently?
1: I think the bad news is the drugs aren't much better. They're all pretty much the descendants of the same drugs that these guys got in the 60s and 70s. There's been no huge innovation. Drug companies aren't into it. They think these drugs are good enough or it's too expensive or risky to test new drugs because you can't test them on rats or mice because mice don't get schizophrenia. And so there's no momentum to to come up with something better. But the good news is that um, there is a lot more Uh, but focus on early intervention. So for instance, the oldest Galvin child, Donald, he started behaving strangely as young as 15 or 16 years old. Um, But his final psychotic break that finally got him into the hospital happened when he was 25 years old. So that's nine years of small and large psychotic breaks he was having, periods of acute psychosis that were wearing down his mind and reducing his gray matter. If you can catch someone early and with not too many drugs and with a certain amount of therapy and to help them manage their illness, then they don't have those psychotic breaks and their life becomes much more something that they can control. So that, there's hope there.
0: Bob, we have another question that just came in and it says, when you met the surviving brothers, how aware were they of their illness? Do they understand why they are perhaps in special care?
1: There, there's a term for this and I'm going to garble it. Lindsay's very interested in it. It's the it's the, the notion of being self-aware or being aware that you're sick. Apparently only one of the six Galvin boys who got sick really knew that he was sick. That was Joseph, and he died years before I met the family. He would do things like he would turn and say, you know, I'm having a hallucination. I see a Chinese emperor in the sky talking to me. Don't you see it too? So he was very poignant that way. But the rest of them don't don't talk that way. They don't say I've been diagnosed with with schizophrenia. They they talk about you know bad things that happened to them when they were kids, or how happy they are to see their visitors, and then you know they have pet subjects that they like to talk about over and over again. But it's um, uh, interestingly though, they did know the reason why I was there, and and they they did understand I was writing a book about them and about the family. And apparently Peter has the book. It is assisted living place, and shows it to everyone. So that, so they were they are in the world, but they aren't self-aware. And it's very interesting that way.
0: I was curious, uh, um, how many of them have your book or or have read
1: your book? I'm not so sure if Peter or Matt or, or Donald have actually read the book, but they all have copies. And everyone else, of course, is has read it and has you know thoughts and opinions and and have been very excited about how it's been connecting with readers they you know none of us knew whether it would come and go or whether it would connect with people and speak to people and it's exciting for them to see all the positive a word that the book is getting
0: as a reader i got to tell you i was exhausted because i found it it was it, it was i couldn't put it down and it was unrelenting and this is all happening at the same time As the guy that wrote the book and did the research, was this exhausting for you?
1: It it was the challenge of a career to write a book about about so many different people and just to get the people straight and to get a, as you said, to to understand each person as a person and not just a, a chess piece on a board. So the technical challenge of writing the book was tough, but I was determined to have a little balance in my life because this was my second book. And the first book that I wrote, another nonfiction book, I was white-knuckling it the whole time and just terrified. And I would then I would leave my desk and say, I'm fine, really, I'm fine. But I really wasn't fine. So this time, you know, I took a cooking class. We got a dog. You know, I tried to have a, a bit of a life while I was working on the book as well.
0: Was there a, it's because it sounds so strange, a favorite interview? And I'm guessing maybe Mimi, because to me, I would think she would be very guarded and would probably feel very good to get through to her.
1: Yes, she she was very charming and very energetic even though she was physically frail and she was very sharp she was 90 or 91 when i met her you know she was she was commenting on what the food was that she was eating and she was loaning out books to her grandchildren you know she was you know watching youtubes that people would show her she was she was with it but in terms of talking about the difficulties of her family she would much rather have talked about the good stuff so it took me and her two daughters at lindsay and margaret sitting there just sort of gently Uh, persuade her to talk more about the difficult subjects. And eventually she was able to talk about the shame she felt for so long and how the moments where she felt unsafe at home because some of her sons were becoming dangerous and how she felt like she couldn't tell anyone and how the doctors were blaming her and her husband for what was going on. All of that was, was something that she took a while to come around to talking about.
0: I would imagine that there was one thing, and I, I'm probably going to butcher it, but she, you were asking her a question, and she said something like, but I was a good mother, I, I baked a cake every day?
1: Yes, you know, she was always interested in things looking good and things seeming, seeming good, and she felt that the, everything else would follow. So even after she knew that that was a fallacy, even, though, even after the worst happened and she became a very effective advocate for the health of her sick sons, She still was doing that. You know, Peter would be brought over to visit her from his assisted living center and his shirt would be misbuttoned or he wouldn't have showered or something. And she, that's all she would talk about. And her her daughters would say to her, you know, really, mom, you know, that's what you're focused on. But that's who she was. She, she, that was her compulsion.
0: I came away after this book thinking, there's probably hope. There will be a breakthrough. Your final thoughts on that.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, there. There's an understanding now that while we don't have a genetic smoking gun that we understand is the, the cause of schizophrenia, we now know for sure that there's a real genetic basis to the illness. And so it's almost like having suddenly, for the first time in 100 years, we have the ground under our feet to walk on. And from here, we can move forward and really see how it affects the brain, how we can fortify the brain and make it more resilient.
0: The book is Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. Bob Coker, thank you so much for being with me. I'm Ann Bocock and thank you for listening to season one of Go Between the Covers, produced by South Florida PBS. It's been wonderful getting to meet so many brilliant authors and learning about the moments that have impacted their lives. To connect with us and our guests, check out our show notes or visit us at southfloridapbs.org slash go BTC. Stay tuned for season two.